You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 390 of the Columbia Calling podcast. A huge thank you to the 10, 11 of you that have signed up this last week for the subscription service to our newscast uh, tier on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. You will receive, you can receive, the uh, Columbia News segment as reported by our journalist Emily Hart in Medellin, and it will come directly to your WhatsApp account in an audio file. And it's less than five minutes of all the news in Colombia. So fantastic opportunity for Colombianists and basic people interested in news from this part of the world. And it's an excellent service. I think you'll all agree. So, of course, sign up for that if you are interested. One dollar per month. That's uh, before uh, separate news uh, audio files every Monday sent to you there to your WhatsApp account. So pretty cool, I think. This week's episode is a, is a fun one. I actually enjoyed, well, I enjoy all of them, but I enjoyed this one a great deal because not only is Emily Hart in Medellin on the line and we have sort of a back and forth, it's good banter, but of course we're talking to urbanist, Austrian urbanist Manuel Oberlader, who is in Medellin too, and he has set up with a team of which Emily played her part. He has set up, Manuel has set up his team, and they have launched a, an exhibition in the EPM library in downtown Medellin. So that's right by the Plaza Cisneros. And it's about uh, Medellin's sort of forgotten peripheries. And so while we all focus on Comuna 13, so that's uh, Comuna 13 in Medellin and most tourists visit there and they see the hip hop and they see the graffiti and the escalators and the cable cars and everything else and of course and justifiably this section of the uh, of the city is lauded internationally but of course Medellin is a big city there's so much more to the city and there are so many other more, other communities lacking in uh well, state intervention and state help. A lot, of course, are invasiones or invasions, a, a certain type of, uh, I don't like to say it, shantytown, but that's what they are, where there's no running water and people live like that and have been living like that for years. And so Manuel has taken his knowledge and applied it through workshops, through capacity building, over a long period of time to create an exhibition in the EPM library, detailing, but of course, alongside and reported and uh, exhibited with and by people from these regions. So therefore, it's something that's very holistic in its fashion. And I think you'll find this 
podcast very interesting on that level. So thank you again. I had quite a lot of feedback on Twitter from last week's episode about the Médecins Sans Frontières or the Médicos Sin Fronteras or, of course, Doctors Without Borders talking to us from their base in southern Panama or eastern Panama where they receive and treat medically uh, thousands of migrants trying to make the trek up to the United States and having just emerged from the Darien Gap. So hiking from Colombia to Panama through some of the most horrific uh, um, conditions and circumstances, uh, I would say, that any human being can be um, exposed to. So very important show. I was uh, very flattered to be approached by MSF to report on their story and hear from them. But I'm going to hand over now to Emily Hart with the news segment, and we will be back with Manuel Oberlader. I, guess I can't say his name, I forgive me. Uh, and Emily, of course, talking in this third segment of the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you again, everyone, for listening, and thank you again for, to everyone who signed up to the news subscription service. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of August 23rd, 2021. Since the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan last weekend, Colombia has agreed to accept 4,000 refugees who will wait in the country while entry into the U.S. is processed. Since the 14th of August, the U.S. has evacuated around 17,000 people from Afghanistan. Agreements have been made with Germany, Spain, Canada and Italy to temporarily receive those refugees. In Latin America, Chile, Costa Rica and Mexico will also admit Afghan families. Relocation to the USA could take between three and six months, though some may be relocated to other countries or even stay more permanently in Colombia. This is seen as a message from Bogotá to Washington that Colombia will support them during this crisis, undoubtedly a bid to improve bilateral relations. Meanwhile, the involvement of Colombian mercenaries in the assassination of the president of Haiti is becoming clearer as reports of the orders issued to those hired leaked into the press. Meanwhile, the Colombian government seeks a lawyer for the group. The case may, given the current fragility of Haiti's institutions, even by the admission of their own authorities, be taken to a special UN tribunal. In peace process news, former commander of the Colombian National Army, Mario Montoya, will be indicted this Wednesday on charges relating to Colombia's so-called false positive scandal the extrajudicial execution of civilians by the Colombian military, who were then used to boost the statistics around combat kills during the conflict. Mario Montoya will be charged for having allowed more than 100 illegal executions. Prosecutor Francisco Barbosa wants to charge him with the crimes of aggravated murder and tampering with evidence. Montoya is, in parallel, being investigated by the Special Justice Tribunal, HEP. Though this new secondary trial in front of regular justice may motivate him to cooperate at the HEP, where the penalties are much more lenient. This week, the two poles of Colombian politics, hard-right former President Álvaro Uribe and leftist presidential hopeful Gustavo Petro, have unexpectedly found themselves in agreement, both calling for a general amnesty in Colombia, a clean slate. Uribe's comments were supposedly sparked by the perceived contradiction of protesters such as EPA Colombia facing five years in prison, while former FARC combatants have not faced any jail time for crimes committed during the civil conflict. Petro publicly agreed, though with caveats, saying that social and historical forgiveness are fundamental to peace, adding that before an amnesty there must be a return of all assets to those dispossessed and complete truth delivered to the nation. 
three men were killed in a massacre in the Cauca on Saturday night, bringing the total number of massacres so far this year in Colombia to 66. Numerous armed groups from the dissident FARC and guerrilla to paramilitary and narco-trafficking are active in the area. Social leader Eliezer Sanchez Cáceres was also killed on Saturday in Cúcuta, Norte de Santander, bringing the total number of social leaders killed this year to 109. More than 1,200 have been killed since the signing of the peace accords in 2016. At least 1,100 people have been displaced in Chocó, following ongoing clashes between the ELN guerrilla and the Gaitanista Self-Defense Forces of Colombia. In the first half of this year, there were 102 mass displacements involving 45,000 victims. In the same period last year, there were only 51 events and 14,000 victims. Bogotá's mayor, Claudia López, initially seen as a liberal figure, faces more controversy over xenophobia as she tried to set up a specific task force against crimes committed by Venezuelan migrants. The Inter-American Commission of Human Rights expressed concern about the idea and the National Migration Office withdrew support, so the plan fell apart, though López continues to face criticism over her reinforcement of a narrative which links criminality in the capital and Venezuelan migration. Colombia, meanwhile, has been ranked one of the world's top five xenophobic nations in a new study by Ipsos Global Advisor. And coronavirus cases continue to fall. New daily cases are now at less than 3,000, down from a peak of more than 30,000 in July. More than 40% of the population has now had one dose of vaccine, nearly 30% are fully vaccinated. The country is now vaccinating those between 15 and 19 years old, and the Vice Minister of Health confirmed this week that a third dose will be applied where necessary. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 390 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Can you believe it that we've got this far? This week's a very special episode. Well, every episode is special, but this week's a special one because Emily Hart, your favorite newscaster, your Monday Hi. morning cup of coffee, <laughs> is joining us here from Medellin. And she has got with her, well, they're both on the line from Medellin, is Emmanuel Oberlander, who's Austrian, and he lives there in Medellin as well. And the both of them, Emily and Manu, we're going to say, Emily and Manu have been working together and they launched with a team, a whole team. Let's not, let's not uh, forget. But a whole team, a new exhibition called Contra Mirada, that's on in, well, in a museum, in a, a museum there in Medellin, opened on the 17th of August, and it's running till the 30th of October. You've definitely got to go and see it. So let's talk about this. Um, let's talk about this exhibi exhibition. But before we jump into that, let's talk to Manu, who's there in Medellin. It's how does an Austrian end up in Medellin because Medellin is a popular place for our remote worker listeners and of course those dreaming of being remote workers. So tell us a little bit about uh, you know about you Manu. Hi everybody. Um, well I have always uh, been interested in in Latin America. I've traveled around quite a lot and wherever I went to uh, people would always tell me you have to go to Colombia. Everybody told me that. So I thought, okay, at some point I, I will have to, to uh, visit Colombia and one of the most, of course, one of the most uh, exciting places and uh, 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 nicest places in the country is definitely, definitely Medellin. It's uh, one of the easiest places also for a foreigner to arrive and to, to, 
start a life and, and to get a little bit into these uh, Colombian vibes. So I ended up, I started my, my travel in, in, in Medellin. I traveled around a bit the country and then ended up again in Medellin. It was actually right before the pandemic started. And I thought I needed sort of also as a safe place where I felt safe and where I wanted to stay for a while. And this is why I came back to Medellin. Yeah. Nice, nice. So, I mean, that was it. You started and you finished in Medellin. You're there now. And, and of course, you've immersed yourself in the local culture and you're trying to make uh, some sort of a difference. But so, Emily, how did you get involved with Manu and this exhibition? Me and Manu have met by coincidence in a number of different cafes in Medellin. <laughs> and we always, in our first couple of interactions, had the most brilliant conversations. And the most recent time we ran into each other in a cafe because we're both often on laptops in cafes uh, surrounded by used, used cups and half-eaten croissants um, was about city culture and about Medellin and its culture of innovation and I think what, what we both termed the, the fetish of the Medellin metro, um, which is this huge public uh, policy focus on the metro and whether or not, um, whether or not that's a little inflated and then Manu told me he was working on this exhibition, which related to all of this stuff, which sounded fascinating. And I demanded to be involved. And, <laughs> and here we are. And I like that. I think, I think you should demand. Because if you don't ask <laughs> or, or demand in brackets, you'll never know. I mean, exactly. that's the truth. So, um, so where did this idea come from, Manu? Because I, I love this. I, lo I mean, it shows that you're truly getting involved in the city. You're not living like some sort of economic exile there. Well, at least I'm trying. I'm trying, Richard. The, the idea was always, of course, I am a, I'm a, a sociologist, urbanist. I used to work in traffic and transportation, focus on, on cities and urban agglomerations. And uh, Medellin is, of course, <laughs> per se, a, a very interesting case. So I, I was, I've always been interested. Also, Bogota is a very interesting case back in the uh, 90s and the, uh, 20, uh, early 20s, right? So I, my interest was always there. And at the same time, what I hated most during all of my, my, uh, my travels is I don't want to be a tourist, just a tourist. My idea was always, okay, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to get the country, uh, I'd like to get to know the country uh, really and, and, um, and do something which makes sense, make probably a difference, I don't know, but uh, at least uh, try to contribute to, to the people I'm, uh, I'm, I'm staying at at the moment. So this was the idea. And I thought, okay, uh, what am I going to do? Uh, <laughs> it wasn't clear. I knew that I was interested in, in, in the metro system. I knew that I was interested in the, in the barrios. A friend of mine had done this kind of uh, tours to the extreme parts of, of, of Latin American cities and would walk back. And I was always fascinated. And I thought, isn't that very da super dangerous? Can you really do that? And what would the people say? And so on and so forth. And he always would would tell me, no, it's just fine. I mean, it's just normal people. Just give it a try. Dogs are a problem often because uh, stray dogs, you need to take care of them and they would uh, come over to you and you need to try to handle that. But people in general, they're just, they're just fine, you know. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry for making this comparison, but uh, this is 
this was a bit the idea. If you go to the barrio, to a place which you don't know, if your your Spanish is not perfect, etc. Of course, you there's always these kind of concerns, security concerns, and so on and so forth. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a try. Went to the most uh, extreme parts of the city, outer parts of the city, and tried to see how does it look there. What uh, what do people? Uh, what what can people tell me if, uh, about their lives there and about? what kind of impact certain kind of uh, developments, infrastructure develop, developments uh, had on their communities. Mm -hmm. And that's when the whole idea for the exhibition started. That's when, when, when I started to develop this idea of uh, a counter perspective, uh, going to the, to the periphery and, and, and telling their stories, stories and their narratives. This was the start. Yeah. I like this very much. Emily, did you go out, uh, you know, on, on the dog tours in the peripheries, uh, you know, uh, avoiding <laughs> no, stray dogs? I, in... I have encountered only quite sweet stray dogs, but I, I joined in the slightly later phase of the exhibition, uh, by which okay. time Manu, with a bunch of brilliant uh, contacts, some of whom were through NGOs, some of whom were through other things, had, had set up... Uh, our visits and also our our way of interacting and learning with those communities, which was participatory workshops, mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, better you explain what that is, Manu, my, my sociology think, vocab is lacking. <laughs> I think this is, is such an important aspect, uh, actually. Um, going alone to a, to, to a barrio and trying to, to access those people and to start talking to them is, is rather a difficult so it can be a bit challenging in the beginning. So, of course, if you have contacts uh, in the barrios, this facilitates everything. This changes everything. It's so much, it's so so much more easier to 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 get access to the people to have uh, interviews there. So, what we did is we set up these contacts, try to set up these contacts, and try to to organize it a bit more, to make it, to structure it a bit more. Uh, these interviews which we planned, and we got this lovely. Um, uh, contacts in the barrios in the most uh, how do you say Emily in the most extreme uh, parts of the city or in the most outer parts of the city yeah they're uh, effectively the high the highest up parts um, because Medellin if, if you don't know is shaped is shaped like a bowl uh, so we're talking the, the places on on the rim of the bowl these are the most recent arrivals to the city they arrived you know anywhere between the 80s and and still effectively um, and people arrive on the outskirts of the city and build where they find land. So we're really at, at the extreme edges of the city. Uh, are we talking about displaced people a, a lot of the time in these? Yeah, so yeah, one we're of talking, mm -hmm. we're, we're, no, talking, no, we're talking about invasions in a sense, or so they're, they're called invasiones, no? Uh, so these people didn't come legally. Uh, they came due to all sorts of different reasons. Some of them because uh, because of di displacement due to the the violent conflict, others because of uh, economic necessities, uh, others because of urban violence uh, in other parts of of other cities. We've talked to uh, young girls who had to to leave Bogota because they told us that they're killing children there. So it was. Uh, uh, young young uh, girls, uh, eight eight nine years old, who told us that it was the situation was too insecure, insecure. They had to to leave Bogota and come to Medellin. Others came from the southern parts of Medellin into these these areas where we've we've been. So there's different reasons to why people uh, uh, get 
to these places, to these informal settle settlements. And uh, the the one we've been to, one of them has the highest percentage of, of displaced people in uh, the Valle de Abura, in, in the Antioquia uh, region, uh, and the second highest in uh, Colombia after Alto de Suacha in Bogota. So, and what 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 is this area then in in Medellin that you're talking about? So this was the Vereda Granizal, which is officially not um, part of the municipality of uh, Medellin. It is already the municipality of Bello, which is the neighboring city, and. This is a really peculiar thing in a sense. People would always tell us, well, or people, officials from Bayo would always, uh, uh, from Medellin would always tell us, we are not responsible for them. This is administratively a different area. But of course, for the people who live there, this doesn't make sense at all because they live just next to the, to uh, the, the, administrative border of uh, Medellin and of course they use their infrastructure, they use their metro station, they use their uh, centro de salud, the, 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 how do you call it, hospitals or, or all, all sorts of uh, infrastructure also, shopping centers etc so on and so forth. So their life is oriented towards Medellin and Medellin says we don't care about you. It's the responsibility of the municipality of Bello. That doesn't make sense and that creates all sorts of all sorts of inefficiencies, all sorts of uh, complete uh, lack of of uh, uh, public infrastructure, and this is what we try to. We talk to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We talk to people who who are being forced to change their their health insurance towards health insurance geared to Bedro, where there is a chronic lack of services, but because of this, you know, effectively arbitrary municipality line they're losing an enormous amount of quality and availability of health services. So what, what are we talking about here is uh, around 30,000 people who don't have access to running water since 25 years. And they're trying to get uh, uh, running water. Uh, there is no legal way to, to get access to that water since it's an informal invasion. The municipality of Bello says, uh, you're informal, these territories are not formalized, we cannot intervene, we cannot, we cannot uh, construct anything, we cannot construct the, the, the aqueducts or the, the, infra the infrastructure for water, uh, and that's where they are, until uh, I, very recently, yes. It's... I, we have the same situation, obviously, I think all Colombian cities and cities in, uh, let's say, developing areas and, and so on and so forth. Between, like you mentioned, Suacha in Bogota, Suacha to Bogota, I mean, you just cross the road. And as soon as you're on the other side, it's a different uh, socioeconomic economic bracket and it doesn't belong to Bogota. And when you take the, if you're taking the highway south... There's a, a divide between Suacha and Bogota where it's unpaved. I mean, it's just this one section. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's because nobody can agree who's supposed to do this little section. And I think it's about 20 meters the last time I drove it. I mean, it's just like throw some cement down. Um, but it, I think, mm. I mean, I, I, I think this is a fascinating opportunity to ask you i mean when when you get sort of like the aqueducto the water board or water uh, a com company saying oh this is all informal we can't formalize we can't do it what is stopping them 
from including these people on, let's say, a network and providing them with a basic human right? Legally speaking, there was a there was an Acción Popular, um, so like a, a sort of group legal case about five years ago. And EPM and Bejo argued logistical impossibility. Um, that was their defense. And they won in that instance. Um, and four years later, thankfully, um, thanks to a great lawyer called Jaime Agudelo and a team of uh, students, they appealed the decision and won. Um, you know, this idea of Colombia isn't, it's a difficult place to build infrastructure. No, nobody's arguing against that. These Ferreiras are on steep hills, there are landslides. You know, anyone who's driven down a Colombian road can, you know, I wouldn't know where to put one. Like if I was looking at an, a bit of the Andes, I, I get that it's hard, but it, it is it is not impossible. Um, and it is, it's irresponsible to pretend it was. And a judge finally recognized that recently. Um, however, it looks like a, was it seven years, Manu? The, the prognosis for actually implementing the right to water, which is a human right at individual and community level, the implementation schedule still looks pretty ropey to me. And as Manu said, 25 years without drinkable water, that's, that's too many years by literally any measure. And I would like to add also, there is also historic reasons to it. Those invasions, there is a political aspect to it. They were not never wanted. They were not opportune. The, the the city administration didn't want to take care of them. So this is there is a, this historical aspect to it as well that that it is only in the recent years that um, city administrations probably even start saying, okay, we can see them as a as a as a potential also in the future. Those areas who who have been neglected for such a long time, who have been uh, who were perceived as being illegals, uh, political inopportune um, parts of the society, etc., left wing guerrilleros or whatever you uh, they wanted to call them, right? Uh, so they didn't want to intervene for so many years. It was a political issue which came into play. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the great things about this um, this most recent legal win is that the judge said, I appreciate it is difficult for all of these different reasons, but not only do you need to implement water, clean water, drinkable water for these people, but you need to do the things that will enable you to do that, i.e. work towards formalizing land titles. If informality of land holding is a problem, fix it so that you can give people water, which I think is a brilliantly holistic approach and un understands the problem, like Manu says. It's, it's political and it's historical. And often it's the other way around, in a sense. It's, it's by providing this uh, infrastructure for water that the hopes and the wishes of the people there is that finally they get formalized there, that fi finally they will also get a paved road. Because once you, need to, once you want to do those constructions in those outer parts of the city, you need to have the lorries driving there and so on and so forth. You need roads to get there. You need electricity. Those areas don't have light at night, for instance. That that means if they don't have light at night, means that the taxi drivers don't want to drive there because it's too dangerous and it's dark. 
Also, as we mentioned before, Richard, it is the same situation. Do you know how you recognize that you arrive in this in this uh, municipality of Bayou, Verena Granizal? You recognize it in the bus because all of a sudden the pavement stops. All of a sudden the road gets bumpy and you know, ah, now I'm in Bayou. Now I'm in this mm-hmm. informal settlement, etc., where you don't have roads, where you don't have lightning, where you don't have uh, water, etc., and so on and so forth. So it is a very Bay. visible or very uh, tactile, how do you say, a very, um, something you can feel. Yeah, very like strong. a tangible change right up. But what, I mean, Bayo is a, it's a city, it's big. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a big place. It's not as if it's just like, a, you know, a, a, a satellite community on the edge. I mean, it's a big place. So, I mean, it, we... So, so your idea, your idea over all of this, and again, we'll go back a little bit, is that you don't want to be a tourist. You want to immerse yourself. You're bringing your knowledge, which is great. I like that sort of thing. I like you're bringing your knowledge here to expose things that we know, but let's say bring it to the fore. But those of us who've been here a long time, we're all in that in that boat. We, we see this things. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I get wound up. I get a little bit tetchy because of paperwork and local politics and and everything else. These things can be resolved. I think that's the thing. Is there are there is a will, but what stops? Uh, you know, what stops uh, the mayor of Medellin saying, "Listen, ninety percent of the population of Bayo. I don't know. I'm making this up. Work in Medellin. Can't we make it a little bit more accessible?" <laughs> it's like I don't know. Richard, this is an incredible, difficult question you're asking me. (laughs) Very, very hard to answer. Um, I have to say what I can do, I I can only talk about my perspective in, in that sense. Me as a foreigner, and I guess probably it's 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 a bit the same for you guys as well. We are in a bit an in-between kind of situation situation. I have the possibility to go to the Fundación or Biblioteca EPM, the biggest public service provider of Medellin, and criticize them. I'm not so sure if every, uh, if the average Colombian has this possibility. I simply do it. Or we, Emily, me, and the team, we discussed this uh, a lot. We said mm. uh, we're gonna we're gonna tell whatever we want to we want to say. We, we're gonna say whatever we want to say, and we have this ability. And I think uh, this is our chance. I think this is a bit my 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 role or our role as well uh, to say, look, here there is an issue, uh, and uh, we want to point point that out. And I think this can help. This can contribute to a solution. I don't think that we are the solution, not at all. But I think we can contribute a little bit to to visibilize and to to say, okay, here is a is a problem, and um, please take it seriously. And uh, twenty eight thousand people without running water. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I think there's there's something like very important in in the approach that that Manu and the the team designed, um, which was that we we were totally driven by the the voices of the people that we spoke to, and there you know there was some pushback saying like you know why all this focus on water, and the team did 130 interviews overall. You know, we didn't just wander around like, well, I don't see any water. This is probably a problem. Like, no, like there were in-depth, serious interviews with social leaders, with members of the community. And there is no possible doubt 
that this is a problem in the forefront of the minds of everybody who lives in that community. You know, this this is not, it's, it's, it's the immunity of the foreigner with, you know, the incredible academic mind of, of Manu and the sociologists um, from Bogota, um, but really backed up by observations made by people who live in that community. Um, and that, and that was what drove the, the conclusions and our focus on that on that particular issue in Granisat. Exactly. We always we always told them, excuse me, but it's not us what, who, who are saying this. It was the people, and we have the evidence here. We talked to them. We t we went and talked to the social leaders. We went and talked to the ordinary and the normal people, and this is their voices. And we have the quotes here, and we recorded them, and this is what we like to present in the exhibition. And... Uh, yeah, that's that was our our approach. Yes, and Emily, you said something that was has resonated with me. There is the 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 immunity of a foreigner, and we do have that immunity, and we need to use that. Let's say in a superhero sense, if for good, we need to be able to rather than getting off a fine or something else, we need to use that immunity, the special dispensation which is true, it does exist as foreigners here, whether we like it or not, whether we take advantage of it or not, it does exist. The fact that you have gone and done 130 interviews in barrios around Medellin and in the peripheries and beyond Medellin is a huge deal. To then take that, uh, you know, to take the information and to take the results, uh, collate it, uh, and again, and, and hang on a second, your, your exhibition is in the EPM, museum right so, yeah, yes. so, yeah, so they yes, obviously listen to you this is my favorite so, thing my favorite thing about it and Manu just going yeah. to meetings and being like hello yes we would like to put this content in your library it's so ballsy in your library it. in your <laughs> library about state abandonment <laughs> and uh, it's them actually and EPM not but, doing their jobs in your library and, 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 and you, you well you, you've got the immunity there I mean to go through and we're talking about this immunity and we're talking about the special dispensation and everything else. And, and this allowed you then, Manu, to, to go up to the EPMs. That's, uh, I, I guess that's, what is it? Uh, uh, something Empresas Publico de Medellín. De Medellín, so public service yeah. provider. Yeah. So these guys do the water. Uh, what else do they do? Uh, a waste collection, Electricity. I assume. Electricity. Uh, in fact, Affinia is EPM, the one that now provide electricity to the coast, to the Caribbean region, and they're dreadful. So I can only think what they're like in Medellin. I don't know. <laughs> My they're power huge, outages they're a huge are frequent. <laughs> they are, they're a huge conglomerate with a lot of um, a lot of power and influence and and money, yes. and they have, yeah. you know, there is a history, and this is the effectively the history of formalization of these barriers is that very creative, innovative arrivals, pirate electricity and water, and EPM kind of think, well, we, we can't control this, so we'll formalize it. And then they come in and say, okay, you can have the electricity, but pay us X amount per month. And then bit by bit, public services are gained. Um, and in the vereda that we're talking about, the, the Granny Cell vereda, uh, water has been, has been pirated. A bunch of pipes do bring water in but it's it's so dirty that it makes children sick and it brings people's skin out in boils even after being boiled um so these these processes that have been going on for 50 years in Medellin of you know 
creative, shall we say, access to services leading to formalization have not been possible in, in these veredas. And, um, and I, I'm just such a fan of the, the ballsy approach of Comptes in bringing this issue to the EPM library. I just think it's amazing. Well, I, I I I love this, uh, and and I love that you've you've done this, and of course I, I hope that you've got an epidemiologist amongst you to do some of the you know take through these things that are about to uh, boiling the water still. You, 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 the people are still getting sick. I mean, that's serious stuff. Uh, it's a serious episode. But I want to talk uh, because we could go on with a lot of the issues and stuff. But I want to talk about your initial reception in these barrios, Manu. I mean. Let's. Uh, you know, I'm a. I'm a tall white foreigner. You're a, another white foreigner. I can only see you from the waist up. Uh, so therefore, and em- Emily's a white foreigner. Not a tall um, one. <laughs> you no. Know, uh, you know, we definitely stand out. Uh, so when you first got out there without any contacts or without communication, you know, in a barrio that let's say a barrio, if we talk to someone. Uh, let's say someone who lives in El Poblado or someone who lives in Yeras or someone who lives up on the mountain there uh, uh, near to the clinic, I want to say El Rosario, somewhere like that, because that's where I was hospitalized for, that's another story. Um, but uh, I want to say people that live in these nice, big complexes probably don't leave them too much. You know, they've got a swimming pool and a gym and everything else. You said to them, no, I'm going up blind into La Cruz, what would they say to you? <laughs> well, in the beginning, it's always kind of an adventure to a certain kind of extent, of course. Uh, I've been doing that once in Guatemala with a student group, and our professor back then said to, uh, said to us, you now go to these little villages, and in the evening, I want you to be back here with 10 interviews each. And we were panicking. How do we get 10 interviews? How do we approach people in ordinary people in their houses do i ring the doorbell how am i going to do this whole thing yeah. well what is really interesting about the barrio is completely it's completely contrary to what one would think we always have this uh, this perception that the barrio is dangerous and the people should uh, are, are a certain kind of way, etc. But when you go there, what you encounter is actually the most lovely and wonderful people you could possibly imagine. And what you also encounter, Richard, is that people want to tell their stories and they want to be heard. So, of course, you have to make an effort first. You have to make the, make the first step. You have to approach them. You have to tell them what you're doing. In Guatemala back then, the problem was that they didn't trust us. They thought we were from the International uh, Organization for Migration and that we wanted to control migratory paths and so on and so forth. We wanted to investigate them and so on and so forth. This is a problematic uh, position you're in. If you're a social researcher, if you want to do empirical research in in, in a barrio in Colombia, uh, you you have to reflect on your role as well. I mean, how do people perceive you? But in general, you can simply approach them, start talking to them, tell them, be honest about what you're doing. Tell them what you're doing, where you go, how the, the whole thing is set up. And obviously in the beginning, uh, uh, many people are suspicious as well and so on and so forth. But in general, the people are incredibly happy to talk to you, to be, to, to be, to be heard. 
It's a very important aspect. Most of the people told us that they f feel completely left uh, left alone, that no, nobody's interested in their stories and that nobody ever shows up. There is no police there. There is no municipality there. There's no one who is interested in their life, except except when, when it's elections. Elections, uh, yeah. then all of a sudden a few politicians would show up and so on and would tell them that uh, big improvements are going to happen and so on. But no one is in, in, in general uh, much interested in the life of the barrio. And my idea and our idea was to, to tell their story. To, mm. so, so, and another uh, thing I loved about this project, just as a as a journalist and i know and i know a lot of us feel this way is that there's there's a lot of very justified concern about feeling extractive about going into a place taking a bunch of quotes and running um and you know getting your byline etc and what i loved about this project is that we we weren't just doing interviews we also set up day-long workshops in which groups of people were taught how to use a professional camera or made a documentary um, with our head of um, photography and video, Pipe, who's brilliant, who went in and taught big groups and brought resources. And, you know, we made an enormous sancocho up in one of the, um, one of the barrios for a lunch. There was, there was something much more interactive and less extractive about this process. And also of, of creating a comfortable environment in which to talk to people where you are genuinely sharing and communicating because you, you, you have a certain type of interaction as a journalist if you show up and you're like, hey, tell me a story. Whereas if you show up with a group and you bring things and you interact and you communicate, you get very different stories out of people. Um, and these workshops were a real lesson in that, I think. I would say bringing a sancocho is the way to break down any barrier, especially because food is just it's pivotal, though. And then you're all around it and you're all sharing. So... You know, I think uh, there's that famous book written, I can't remember his name, but The Poverty Safari. You're not doing that. Uh, and uh, that's important. So you were doing these workshops and you're sort of, I guess, listening, I think is the biggest thing, isn't it? Listening right. and observing. But uh, now you've got this exhibition and you've trained up uh, let's local kids and adolescents, I imagine, in, in how to use cameras and how to record and, and take photographs. Is this, uh, is this then something that's going to be long-term? I mean, is this going to continue, this, this, the projects that you have in, in these barrios? Because that's part of the thing, is when you say, and I'm, not, I'm just playing a slight devil's advocate here, because you say, you know, it's not extractive, but people feel abandoned, you know? So we come with the best intentions, but people do feel abandoned. Is it so well... Well, Richard, uh, another difficult question. Uh, uh, very hard for me, me to answer. What we try to do to a certain kind of extent is, is um, I think we were also thinking about uh, uh, the role of academia, the role of research in, in such an area. And the idea was also, okay, these people, most of those people don't have, have access to the public discourse, to the world of arts and academia. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea was, okay, we need to reach out. We need to think about what is our role? What can we do? How can we include the, uh, the communities? i give you one example. Uh, Gorgori is a very young, um, his name is called, uh, they call him Gorgori, his name is called uh, Juan Felipe and uh, 
he is a young 18-year-old uh, social leader and uh, we try to include him. We try to tell him, okay, look, uh, Gorgori, we want to set up this thing here. Can you help us? Can you ask Doña Ana to, to cook us the Sancocho while we're having the, the workshop? We want to bring you something, uh, uh, do the, the, the photography and film workshops with you together. And so there is a certain kind of knowledge engagement that we bring. Uh, we try to engage a little bit long term, etc. But of course, as you say, um, uh, how long does the project last, and what is the long term uh, impacts? Well, <laughs> this is a difficult question. We are on it. Let's say we've uh, also written a, a scientific report, so we uh, we try to give uh, the, the academic uh, community a, a bit something back. Let's say. Um, we try to publicize it as much as we can, and we try to also uh, uh, reach out to to our home countries. Let's say so. We set up a, a collaboration with a Dutch um, a museum, uh, which will feature us and and in 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 different sorts of ways, and also with uh, with Austrian institutions uh, and Austri also Austrian uh, newspapers. Probably uh, now we're here in Colombia calling. So this is what we're trying. <laughs> To, to do um yeah emily uh, would you like to add something to it yeah i think there's there's an inevitability to try not try to minimize the number of syllables uh it's ephem <laughs> it's ephemeral sorry <laughs> bad bad non-journalistic habits it's working with storytelling is always ephemeral um people hear a story they go to an exhibition and then they go home and their lives go on. And, and you do, you accept that as part of the work that you do, even as an activist. Um, but it is still totally key, though it, it can only be limited as a piece of storytelling. It's still incredibly important. And to shift someone's perspective even a little bit or make EPM feel even a little bit uncomfortable or, you know, these, <laughs> these small changes, these small changes that you can make with storytelling. And I think that that's why all of us do what we do. Um, mm. It's just those like those little tiny shifts that that hopefully accumulate. Um, and I think you know, giving giving a sense of visibility to people who feel abandoned is one thing. Um, but we have also, you know, effectively left reasonably large amounts of money in all of the barrios that we've been to because everything was done by and with ONGs, ONGs, ONG, NGOs, as they're known in English, um, <laughs> from those barriers. And even the, the shelves that we used in the exhibition were built by a carpenter from one of the veredas. It was very much um, community-based. Um, so there, there has been, you know, and again, leaving money in a place, ephemeral, it enters the economy, it dissipates much as a story does. Um, but I do think it's important. And we've got such a, a passionate and and talented team, um, both on the academic side and on the creative side. The designer Archie and the photographer Pipe are just geniuses, both of them Colombian guys. Um, and I think I think we'd all love to see this exhibition in other spaces or to repeat it in other cities or with other themes um, and keep making those those small shifts in, in people's consciousness. I have a contact. Ooh. I'm going to look up my contact in Bogota. 
But here's the deal. Here's a deal. I rem- recall reading a book by Paul Theroux, Theroux uh, a long time ago, and he recovers he he covers a, a journey that he made back as a as a student. You know where he wrote about. It. I think it was the Dark Star Safari or the one through Africa, and he he repeats the problem when he comes back. It's about forty years later, and it's the same rotation of uh, people waiting for the next NGO. You know, so uh, mm-hmm. and I think that is an issue. And I'm not, no, no, of course I'm not doing this. But uh, I think that what you have done is empowered some of the youth and helped them see different possibilities and potential. I think. I think that's one of the huge advantages of a position that you have taking something like storytelling and creativity and so i'm going to let you off the hook on that one (laughs) but um i wanted to ask you though if we moved on uh to the exhibition itself because we got to get more people through those doors uh but you had the launch you had the inauguration on the 17th and how how did it how was it received i mean i want to know who turned up what did they say who said that they were never going to talk to you again <laughs> what, what happened did did the people involved in the actual the, the kids the adolescents the communities did they come to the launch as well yes richard so what we tried to do is actually it was a huge success for us at least <laughs> so the, the the we were about 100 people at the inauguration we I think it was even a very special and very important e- event for EPM itself, for the foundation of EPM, where we where we show the exhibition. The director showed up, also a representative uh, from the Austrian embassy showed up, the cultural uh, cultural uh, representative of the Austrian embassy, and we tried to invite as much uh, community leaders we could and people from the from the Vereda. So now, what is going ha- going to happen if you invite people from from the barrios? Their first concern and the first problem is that they need the money to come down to the city center. They often don't even have tiniest bit a bit of of money so we said to them look if the money to come down to the to the inauguration is the problem please uh we're going to give it to you that is not going to be the issue and also we had a group of young dancers afro-colombian dancers who gave us a performance at the inauguration and this was really wonderful and it was received very very positively also, the local TV station, uh, station Telemedellin, showed up and and uh, we gave them an, an interview and the internal communications department of EPM uh, interviewed us. So it was a huge success for us. And in terms of, of the exhibition itself, I think the whole setup was very, how can I say, participatory, transparent, uh, not, uh, very colorful. We tried to make a very uh, aesthetically appealing uh, exhibition which uh, ch- uh, which has some formal parts or some more some more uh, museum style parts and some more community ba- based uh, parts so we used estantes uh, shelves wooden shelves which have been uh, constructed by a carpenter in the in the vereda uh, we st- uh, sticked uh, uh, pictures on it and and used different objects and elements from the barrios themselves which they brought to us 
they brought to us those objects uh, and we, we set it up together with them. They even helped us to create the, the exhibition and we built these little casitas. So these little houses, tiny little houses, which uh, are a symbol for, for the improvised house in the barrio itself, wooden built houses which are very improvised and often the people in the in the barrios don't have doors they use curtains instead so one of the residents came to the exhibition space and knit the curtain curtains herself for our uh, casita door so and inside these casitas inside these little little houses we have the projections with the film projections their own little documentaries which they created um uh, about their barrio, where the one is called uh, "This is my barrio," and the the young people, the teenagers, and the children tell us, okay, what is, what, what is important for them when 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 they think of their barrio and what, what are their necessities, what are their dreams, and uh, yes, and another aspect that I wanted to mention is that these dreams and these wishes, this is something which is something really ast astonishing. Uh, one would think uh, if you go <laughs> into these barriers and as a, as a last question of the interviews we, we made with the people there was often, what is your dream house in the future? If I gave you uh, um, money uh, as much as you wanted, what kind of house would you like to have or what kind of improvement in the barrio would you like to have? And it was so, so surprising how humble and simple the answers were. Most of the people just said, I would like to have a house with three with three rooms in it. That's it. And I'm kind of like, but wouldn't you want to have a, a swimming pool or I don't know what, or a, a big mansion or whatever? No, no, just three rooms because we are three people. We need three different rooms. That's it. And this is really surprising. And uh, in general, if you if you ask people about their dreams, you will see that uh, most of their dreams are just the same as as yours and and mine. This was it's, um, it's um it's amazing. I think I think you know we've got five or six more minutes, and I wanted to to just start, touch on it. And maybe Emily, you, you're in in the position. To, to talk about it a bit as well, is that you're doing this contra mirada, taking this counter perspective, is to acknowledge Comuna Trece, but also move on, because it's got all of the attention, and it it is always in the press, and Medians always receiving accolades, and, you know, justifiably, but it's a big city. <laughs> and the transformation city. is the transformation is real. But I think, um, and this is what a lot of Manu's studies have shown, is that you know the met the metro is somewhat fetishized uh, as a a panacea, as a cure all uh, to Medellin's development problems. And um, a lot of the interviewees in in Santo Domingo, where the cable cars arrived, said house prices rose. I can't afford my home anymore. You know, the the muchachos, the, the illegal groups are still running security around here. We still don't have proper roads, you know. It is it is amazing and it is something to be proud of, the metro, but it it doesn't fix everything. And the electric staircases in Comuna Trece haven't fixed everything. Neither have the fact that the place is still full of tourists. There are still lots of small businesses in that comuna who are paying vacunas to armed groups to maintain their security. You know, even the most celebrated place 
with its innovation and its artistic focus. I think we need we need to be careful of uh, hyper focusing on a certain story that we like that gives us hope um, at the cost of acknowledging the complications and the holistic nature of the approach that needs to be adopted in order to actually improve people's lives in a sustainable way. Um, mm. And Comunitella say, you know, it's a ride, great street art, great dancing, escalators outside, woo! But you know, it's not. <laughs> It's not done. The job yeah, isn't the done. The socioeconomic effects uh, don't show don't show uh, big improvements in terms of education, healthcare, mm. uh, infrastructure provision, and so on. Uh, so the problem is really we plea for holistic approaches. We need more holistic approaches. If you construct a metro and you don't a metro cable which is which is outside visible visible infrastructure and all of a sudden, and, and you don't ask the people where to put the columns, for instance, and all of a sudden, Doña Marta from, from one of the barrios tells us, well, they just put the column in front of my house, just right in front of my house. I cannot even leave my house properly anymore. I mean, this is unbelievable. And, uh, and uh, theoretically, the metro says, yes, we have participatory pro uh, processes. And uh, uh, yesterday I heard an interview with uh, the Ministry of, of Transport here in, in Medellin who said, yeah, well, not everyone's going to always applaud to the measures we're going to take in the city. <laughs> yes, but we need much more participati uh, participatory uh, uh, processes because otherwise... Uh, if you if you if you value the lives of the people who live there you need to take them seriously you need to ask them you need to ask them what are your wishes and necessities what are your biggest problems and you need to involve those people mm -hmm. mm. and acknowledge well, we, the ugly side repeated. i think as well yes i think the, the the ongoing presence of of armed groups and actually you know the complexity of that story in in the places that we're talking about those groups provided resources to people to build houses for some of the big mafia chiefs funded i'm not saying they did this out of the goodness of their heart this is all this is all part of the business model but you know they they funded health centers they have stepped in repeatedly where the government has been absent um and that's a that's an uncomfortable truth and it's a messy story but to really address the problems you need to look at the historical context how these people have arrived how these communities have built up if the state totally abandons a place and someone else steps in that community is is going to be skeptical about state intervention subsequently. It's a it's a complex situation. I, it's a, it's a statistic now, isn't it, of how how few people actually uh, you know believe in the state. I mean, it's it's at, at record lows right now. I think in Colombia, I, um, this this point, and we we'll have to end on on a couple of points here. This point of the armed groups. Uh, I do have to ask, they're not going away, I mean, because this, this is the truth, but you guys didn't have to deal with them in these barrios, did you? You were shielded. Well, we were lucky. Since we got, yeah. this, <laughs> since we got this access uh, through the, the social leaders, we were lucky enough to not... Uh, to not be confronted with those armed groups. The idea was to talk to them as well. This is, of course, a very difficult, uh, uh, very difficult uh, thing to do, and this has to be set up properly. It is not easy, and uh, we were lucky enough uh, to 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 be guided. Once you go to one of those barriers with a 
with a recognized uh, social leader, then you're fine. Then you're protected. Mm-hmm. You can go there with the cameras. And this was always an issue. Can we go there? Are we safe? What about women in particular? In particular, uh, and and. So this is this is uh, this was always an issue and it will always be an, uh, an issue. These uh, security concerns and I think we have to we had to take them seriously also. And we also went to these barriers with uh, technical equipment. And the question was always, okay, are we safe there? Can we take it there? Can we fly with the drone around and can we use our cameras there and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. Yes, these things have to be clarified okay. before beforehand. Definitely. Definitely. You, Emily, you stayed uh, noticeably quiet on that one, but don't talk. <laughs> but anyway, um, let's... No, I, um... I have to say, I, felt, I did feel safe and we only went during the day. Okay. But you you know, the yeah. presence is is felt in the interviews. People talk about yeah. Los Muchachos in interviews Los muchachos. with you. And you, yeah. and you nod and sort of think, good God, I know what All that means. Time. Los Muchachos. Mm. So, so let's wind this down. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time. So, guys, who wants to do it? Who wants to do the plug for the uh, exhibition? Who wants to tell you where are the links? How can people go? What are people doing? Go for it. Who's going to do it? Manu? Uh, Emily? (laughs) (laughs) The director of the exhibition, Manu, is going to direct you towards both the event itself and the links now. So, please, guys, come and join. We are present on Instagram. Our name is Conta Miraz. There you can find uh, uh, micro stories and and uh, pictures of the events and links to the to the to the media uh, uh, interviews and stuff we did. Uh, this is one option. The other thing is uh, go to the city center of Medellin, Plaza de las Luces. There is a huge building which is Biblioteca EPM. It's a huge concrete building. It is uh, actually a very uh, exciting uh, architectural uh, construction. It's called Biblioteca EPM. Parque de las Luces, Plaza Cisneros, uh, right in front, uh, in, in front of uh, La Alpujarra. So that's where we are. This is where the exhibition is going to be from 17th of, uh, where we started on the 17th till the end of October. And we have an outside gallery. Uh, you can already see us on the main square on the Parque de las Luces. Uh, you can see uh, the outside part of the exhibition already with 36 panels, is that correct? Uh, outside, which explains the exhibition and and um, uh, tells uh, stories uh, on the barri- on the people of the barrios, and then we have our, our biggest and most important part is the inside uh, exhibition in the Galleria de Arte in the Arts Gallery, and there you can wander through uh, uh, through our exhibition. I think it's very very exciting to see it. You get a lot of. Uh, uh, dates, uh, statistical data, and uh, uh, and personal stories, and you have these little casitas and houses where you can sit down and watch some some videos, some documentales from the from the people themselves. So I think it's a very exciting exhibition. I would love to have you all there. Phenomenal. Thank you, thank you, uh, Manu. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Emily. It's so great you were working together and, and also facilitated us in this this conversation that we've had. It sounds like a very exciting exhibition. It appeals to me, having done studies in in inner cities and in a city of Bogota. Uh, so I I would go, but no, I, I I'm not going to go to Medellin, unfortunately. I don't think in these months, but I will work as hard as I can to get you to bring it to Bogota. So there you go. I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to call up my, my contact and say, listen, 
This is what we need. Uh, so we'll see what we can do together. And so thank you. Go, everyone, go to Contra Mirada. Go to the Counter Perspective there in the uh, Biblioteca EPM. This is, this is amazing. And, of course, let me remind you all, Emily Hart is here our famous newscaster, the <laughs> reporter who collates, digests, and delivers uh, the news for you every single podcast. And you can sign up for the subscription service on uh, on our Patreon campaign. That's patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And for one dollar, one US dollar, which at the moment is great in pesos, it's like 4,000 pesos, but uh, <laughs> one, one US dollar, you can get the news delivered to your WhatsApp account on Mondays. That's, uh, you know, digested in just under five minutes. It's amazing. And we've had, as of the moment we are recording, 21 new signups. I, I'm just overwhelmed. It's flattering that people want to do this and support us. It's so, fantastic. Thank you to all really of you who signed up. Yeah. I'm going to mention you at some point. I'm going to write down all your names and mention you all. And so uh, in a big in a big list. And I'm, I'm just flattered that you want to help this. And so we're going to we're going to end this episode 390. It's been I, I you know what I've really enjoyed this episode. I think having the three of us here is, is, is has been a fun dynamic. And uh, I hope that we can drive just a, a few more people to the exhibition and that it can be something that's, you know, as, as you say, holistic and long lasting. So thank you again for your time on the Columbia calling podcast uh, i've been talking to emmanuel oberlander i want to say oberlander uh, austrian who's a resident in median emily hart of course needs no introduction uh to all of you out there check out her website emilyhart.co.uk there's uh, her clippings are on there you can see some very erudite articles on there too and so i'm going to <laughs> Thanks, sign Richard. off <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> got to get the flattery no um, i'm loving it loving it <laughs> Um, but this has been episode 390. Uh, I've been Richard McCall for the Columbia Calling Podcast. And thank you again for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.